This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Bastard by Micah Nadolsky and A Note to Hansel, 30 Years Too Late by Bob Thurber. Bastard, written and read by Micah Nadolsky. Listening time, 7 minutes, 56 seconds. Bastard, an original story by Micah Nadolsky. Makeup Spires believed there was life in just about everything. Every two-liter bottle of diet soda, every peanut in the red metal can, every strip of glazed floss that he saved in a drawer under the sink until the whole spool was empty. Saffron Spires tolerated her husband's peculiarities. She handed over her cigarette butts so he could store them away until the entire pack was gone. Keep the family together, he would say. She held on to used napkins and paper towels. She kept the little silver air vacuum tops of her cans of Pringles and made sure to put it in the spots where he liked them. In the beginning, she thought it was almost cute, kind of innocent. For a time after their marriage, Saffron still had her looks, even though she was five years older than her husband. Her hair had refrained from going stoically white. She had yet to see the damage done to the veins in her right calf from a forthcoming blood clot, so skirts were still an option. She hadn't taken on the silver scar on her shoulder where Dr. Caspone would rip out a mole he assumed was cancerous, even though the test results came back negative. All the boys in the office still looked at Saffron and seemed excited just to stand next to her in the hall or on the elevator. Mr. Renton still came over after lunch every day and perched on the edge of her desk to chit-chat, especially when she was wearing her loose black blouse that she knew even God himself attempted to peek down every now and then. That time went quickly for Saffron. A day after their second anniversary and Saffron's 43rd birthday, they didn't hold the elevator for her. She took the stairs and felt the cellulite on her legs shift in the opposite direction of her trembling muscles. She sweat so profusely going up the three flights that her hair no longer obeyed her and sat atop her head like a toddler's crayon scribbles. Saffron had come home that day thankful that Makem would be there, that he didn't judge her or refuse her no matter what kind of consoling she needed or wanted. It was that night in the middle of their coitus that she noticed Makem staring worriedly at a discarded green sleeve from a stick of gum on the dresser. That isn't what a real man does, she thought. That ended up being more than Saffron decided she could stand. Saffron didn't come home the next day after work. For almost three years, she had come home promptly at five and Makem had her dinner ready. It was quarter after when Makem reluctantly pulled the phone off the receiver and punched in her office number. He got her voicemail. He looked at the clock. 
He asked the clock if it was the right time. He got no answer. Makem went into the living room and turned on the television. He kept it on low because Saffron hated the noise, especially when she first got home from work. Makem had just stopped watching TV altogether, but now he wondered if there might have been an accident or something, so he chanced turning it on. None of the sparkling commentators behind their expansive desks had much to say about anything other than the weather. At quarter to six, Makem drained the rice and poured the overcooked granules back into the orange box they had come in before setting it gently into the trash. Saffron went to her sister's. She didn't answer any questions. She took her supper in the spare bedroom in the basement. She cried over her cheeseburger macaroni. Saffron made a fool of herself in the afternoon meeting that day. She laughed a bit too long at one of Mr. Renton's jokes. She put her hand on his arm with her head full up of thoughts of a different life. The life she thought of was one where strange eyes did nothing for her and worry didn't press down on her like humidity, where she didn't feel like scratching her skin right off her bones every time she let a word slip from between her lips. They were all looking at her in the little meeting room. Mr. Renton removed her hand. Leanne Ray came downstairs after she put the kids to bed. She was four years older than Saffron, but looked ten years younger. Saffron watched her sister, wondering if it was all the cigarettes that caused her to get quick, old so quick. But then she noticed the lit one in her sister's hand. You gonna call Makem? Leanne Ray asked. Hell with that loony. Makem set out with no idea where Saffron might be, but some kind of understated knowledge that it was a husband's duty to go looking for his missing wife. He drove slowly with his brights on and the radio coming in low. He decided to try the beer joint up the hill. He imagined maybe someone at the office had been promoted or was leaving and there was a celebration and she had just forgotten to call. Maybe, he thought, even though it had never happened before. The place up the hill was famous, or rather infamous, for getting people drunk then putting them behind the wheel of their vehicles and sending them down the hill in neutral. It was something like a rite of passage. You turn 21, you go up the hill, drink until you pass out, and wake up in the cow pasture strapped behind the wheel of your car. Everyone knew you didn't head up the hill after a certain hour. Everyone knew to take the back road. Marty McMurtry had been drinking since one that afternoon, since receiving his walking papers from the disposable company upon them getting word of his third DUI. Marty had just been propped up behind the wheel of his twice-repossessed red Mustang and sent down the hill when Makem Spires turned up it. Marty ended up in the passenger seat of Makem's sputtering Honda, upside down, pinned there by a section of the windshield. Makem was jettisoned from his vehicle, but his left leg stayed in the car. They finally found him way back in the bushes long after he had bled out. He crawled that far, apparently trying to capture the clear plastic knob one holds on to in order to roll down the car window. The little sucker had popped off on impact and easily picked its way through the gravel like something alive. Saffron didn't feel a thing. She stayed with her sister for a month, turning away all consolations. 
When she left for San Antonio, she found she had not been thinking much about making it all but her daddy instead, even though he had been dead for more than 15 years. He worked the mines most of his life and would come home at night dark as an African. He would get something to eat, then go out drinking. He'd come back with blood on him, sometimes his own, sometimes not. He liked to sit by Saffron's bed late at night and touch her. She could still recall the feel of his stubble against her chest. Saffron smoked as she drove with the windows down. When she finished, she almost saved the butt, almost crushed the cherry free and set it in the ashtray like she used to do, waiting until the whole pack was used and Makem could assemble it like some crazy puzzle. She caught herself doing it and quickly flicked the butt out the window. Her daddy was a bastard, she thought, but at least he was a real man. Micah Nadolski currently resides in Dallas, Texas, by way of Denver, Colorado. He has published one novel previously, It Rises and Will Be Gone. A Note to Hansel, 30 Years Too Late, written by Bob Thurber, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 8 minutes, 30 seconds. A Note to Hansel, 30 Years Later, by Bob Thurber. Dear Hansel, my brother, my darling, forgive my delay in writing to you. I realize it's been 30 years. I hope you are healthy and happy and have remained so since our last meeting. For what it's worth, I did send you an invitation to my wedding a couple of decades ago, though perhaps you had already moved by then and did not receive it. On the chance my hastily scribbled last-minute invitation did find you, and you simply chose to ignore it, I understand. Water under the bridge, as they say. No hard feelings. No regrets. None directed towards you, at least. Just last week I ran into someone from your neck of the woods, someone who knows you and our history, apparently. The whole story, more or less. Though she didn't go into specific detail, thank God or give me any slanted looks, or ask for my autograph, which a surprising amount of people, especially children, still do. Anyway, this woman, who had fine clothes and an impressive feathered hat, says you've lost a surprising amount of weight. An amazing amount, she said. All your witch's fat, she called it, this person who was half my age. Then she sighed and said you'd turned all your blubber into hard muscle, that you are no less handsome, she may have said hunky, as ever, with barely any lines which she called distinguished, on your sun-bronzed face, and neat white hair instead of wild black, no doubt thick as ever. I didn't remember the lady from any place, but she seemed to know you pretty well, said you had recently been hired to clear six acres of woodland for her husband. She seemed quite impressed by your work, so perhaps her husband can give you a letter of recommendation. Couldn't hurt. Though, and I mention this only because it struck me as odd, she made no mention whatsoever of the scar in your hand, or whether you still wear a glove to conceal it when you work. I'll get right to the point, my brother. I'm finally willing to admit you had the right idea, okay? So that's done. That thorny issue is finally settled. You know how it is. Time permits reflection. Age brings clarity, if not wisdom. No question, your mind was sharper than mine back then. Scattering crumbs to mark our trail, leaving a chance for return. Wonderful idea. Clever, resourceful though not at all practical, which was always my point. A smarter plan would have been to collect white stones from the lake shore and drop one every few paces. Do you remember those stones, small as sparrow eggs and just as smooth, how we thought they had value or held some power? 
You named them lake jewels because wet or dry they shined, even in moonlight. You could have used those shining stones to dot a trail. A pocket full of lake jewels would have changed both our lives. Believe it or not, I still have a jar full that you gave me one year on my birthday, so many birthdays ago. I can't look at them, can't hold one in my hand without becoming annoyed. I remember being so angry that fateful day, and so tired, and so goddamn hungry. It hurt my head to walk. I couldn't think. I didn't realize Father was leading us deeper into the forest than he ever had before. I was cramped, frustrated, ravenous. I hadn't had my period in weeks. Naturally, I balked at the sight of you wasting our chunk of bread. But you suspected what he was up to. You knew, and you played it cool. Incidentally, how is it people still speak of a stepmother, a supposedly wicked femme fatale, who manipulated father into abandoning us? How does such a rumor still linger when everyone within fifty miles knows the fool never remarried? Because what woman in those days, or even now, wants a deaf and dumb, ugly, drunken, worthless man? But before I digress into my personal matrimonial woes, let me get back to the morning. Father carried his axe on his shoulder, and we obediently followed behind, but not too close, lest that silent, uncaring monster simply turn and murder us where we stood. Imagine if he had turned while I bitched and screamed, slapped and kicked. God forgive me, but I was ready to kill you over that chunk of bread. And when you held me off, almost effortlessly, I sunk my teeth into your hand and drew blood. I never told you this, but I swallowed that small piece of flesh I tore from you. Do you forgive me that scar, my brother? Do you forgive my absence all these years? You have to understand, I felt like an animal, probably because we had always been treated like beasts, not children. And I was fed up. I had had it. And there you were, tossing bread carelessly into the dirt. My bread. My supper. But by the time we reached deep woods, though darkness had set in, you had calmed me down and wrapped your wound and convinced me of two things. One, a few bites of stale bread would have been a measly meal, deeply unsatisfying. And two, no one was suggesting we ever go back. It's just, you said, that in life, options are everything. They are everything, Gretel, because they are all we have. Do you remember saying those words? Even as a child, you were so much smarter, seeing the world so much clearer than me. Of course, by then we could no longer see the gleam of father's axe or hear his feet rustling leaves, and we understood we had been abandoned, and then we discovered your trail of breadcrumbs had vanished, and we knew we were lost. I remember screaming until my throat hurt, panicked by the sounds of night creatures, echoing all around, and the cold gloom closing in, only the moon to warm us. I remember you making a bed of leaves, then holding me tighter than you ever had before, and I remembered, I remember believing every word you told me, every whispered hope, and the warmth of your blood in my mouth as I sucked the wound I'd made in you. So you quickly made a wound in me, tore me open with my legs on your shoulders, and when you were finished, I stood up, knowing nothing except that I was changed, different, bloody, and confused." What would our lives have become, I wonder, if at dawn we hadn't turned south, crossed the bridge, found that house built of confection, and the half-blind hag who locked you in a cage, then forced me to clean and cook, feed you piles of fruits and cakes, one roasted creature after another, so much food for you and barely a crumb for me. 
and how grotesque you became, right before my eyes slobbering away. Do you remember the very last thing I fed you? A huge baked goose, a forty-pounder. I remember because I singed my hands, tearing its flesh into chunks, small enough to fit through the bars, just so I could lick the fats and juices off my fingers, all the while glaring at your blubbery face sunk deep in your massively swollen neck. How I hated your appetite and what you'd become. Not my brother, but a beast, ready for slaughter. And when that goose was devoured, instead of picking up the bones, I eyed the old hag, leaning precariously into her oven. So I ran, threw all my weight into her, and shoved her bent, broken body into the flames. Do you know I still hear her screams whenever winter winds blow? That I still smell the stink of her burning flesh after every summer rain? It's in my head, I know, and I take a potion for that. But I still fall into fits of weeping, understanding it was the worst thing I ever did, shoving that hag into the fire, and the absolute right thing to do, the only choice I had to save you, that daring, desperate act. And I am not sorry for any of it, though I often wonder how you cope with that memory. Please write and tell me, where do you keep all the memories we made, all our special secrets? I miss you, Hansel. I miss your smile, your eyes, your smell, your voice. I miss how you would carry me piggyback or over your shoulder or cradled high in your arms. I miss the lake jewels on our long walks and the short sprints we made to those crooks and caves and clearings that only you knew about, and how dizzy I would feel when we left them. You never write, never visit, not a word, not a whisper in thirty years. Family should stay in touch. I blame the birds. Who do you blame? Bob Thurber is the author of Paperboy, a dysfunctional novel, and the recipient of numerous awards and citation for short fiction, including the Barry Hanna Fiction Prize. Over the years, he's been called a master of microfiction and the Sam Peckinpah of flash fiction. Listener-supported Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.